0: Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshabible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our text for this morning is Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Please follow as I read. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have as your people to gather in this place. We do think of our brothers and sisters in Qatar, And other places in the world where they are unable to gather in such a setting for fear of outside persecution, even death. Father, here we are this morning, gathered around the Word of God, enjoying the company of your people, praying public prayers, and reading the text of Scripture. What a blessing and what a joy. Father, we are confident that the Spirit of God is working in them as He works in us. May we have ears that hear eyes that see, hands that do. Thank you, Father, for this season. Thank you for the emphasis of the incarnation of Emmanuel. Father, thank you for these moments. May we use them well. We do ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. We are closing our series on Advent with Joseph of Arimathea, who is indeed a good and righteous man. Our primary text is found in Luke 23, verses 50 through 56. Joseph of Arimathea is one of the few individuals named in all four Gospels. But what we will see in Joseph's life through his moment is that God uses courageous means to complete impossible promises through honest people. It's God-fearing, God-believing people who it timely moments stand courageously for Christ and the assembly. Our advent season has officially ended. And yet for us the story only continues. Our study is a part of our advent study. We began with Mary, worked through Joseph, looked at the shepherds, followed the magi, celebrated John 1, Jesus is indeed the light of the world, reflecting the idea of Genesis 1, and then now with Joseph of Arimathea we have went from the incarnation all the way to his crucifixion and then resurrection. Our study is part of our Advent study, but also a, a reminder to us of the story's pervasive and persistent presence in our own story. The story of Advent is continuing to this day. It keeps unfolding. It continues to go on. What we will see inside this text in Romans 8:18 8, is that the present sufferings, the sufferings of this present time, which we will see with Joseph, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for us. We know that we are not just saved from sin and death, but for for joy and glory. And this story continues that theme, that idea. Like Joseph of Arimathea, a day will come when those who have been silent in the workplace, in the classroom, in the political office and home, will, will step forward and clearly identify their allegiance to King Jesus. This confession, this identification, will demand courage on our part, and it will come at great cost. But the present suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to follow. Impossible. What I'd like to note here as we think of the story, and I, I want to interject this thought, is that up front, let us dispel this fabricated myth of a prosperity gospel. That somehow, in believing in Jesus, your life is going to get better in the horizontal. That isn't necessarily true. In fact, I would tell you otherwise that those who follow Jesus, those who live a godly life, will suffer persecution. That consequence is inevitable because we live in a fallen world that is still being governed by the prince of darkness. God oversees all of it. But the idea that somehow believing the gospel will make your life better, that you can have your best life now, is a gospel-biblical fallacy. The gospel will not make your life better in the horizontal. Isn't that an incredible pitch? Like, you really want that product, right? Hey, I know how to make your life miserable. Just believe in Jesus. The wheels are going to fall off and the seams are going to come apart. But the promises, the vertical, will be answered in full. Such thinking is bad at best and heretical at worst to think that somehow the gospel is going to change your horizontal. It will change you but not necessarily your horizontal. I wonder if Mary believed in the prosperity gospel. I wonder after Mary was told she would be carrying the Christ child if her life got better in the horizontal. I wonder if Joseph thought the same same thing, or the shepherds or the magi, or Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. And that's what we will see in the life of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Their life did not get better because they openly identified with Jesus. I would say that their life got much, much worse. I believe the New Testament shows how those who believe in Jesus shall suffer persecution, and this principle is reinforced by the life we see in Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is described simply as a rich man. We'll note that in just a moment, a disciple of Jesus, but according to Mark 15, 43 Joseph was a respected member of the council, and I read it as Sanhedrin. I'll note that in a moment, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea was a very prominent individual. Him and Nicodemus believed the same concerning the Messiah. And we can note three ideas as it's found inside of our text. The first idea is that God does indeed use ordinary people like you and me to complete his extraordinary vision and mission. We know where this is all heading. We know that. We take great comfort knowing that the knowledge of God will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We take great comfort knowing that heaven and earth are going to come together one day. And at the centerpiece of all that will be God. And because he is there, our joy will be full. That's what we are promised. But the means to that end is through ordinary people like you and me. That's what's incredible. We sometimes read biographies of spectacular individuals who have achieved incredible things. But most of life is simply through ordinary people being used by God to accomplish his extraordinary vision and mission. The second thing we can note inside our text is that the present suffering cannot compare to future glory. No matter how hard your life might be in the horizontal, what awaits you in the vertical is glory. We take great comfort knowing that God will one day tie off all the loose ends. We can note that inside our text. And then the third thing we do see inside of this is like Joseph of Arimathea, a day will come when those who have been silent in the workplace, the classroom, the political office, and home will step forward and clearly confess their allegiance to King Jesus. And this confession will demand courage on our part and come at great cost. As I've noted, when we identify openly with Jesus, it does not mean in the horizontal that our life is going to get easier. Chances are, because of that courageous vocal confession, our life is going to become, in that moment, in the horizontal, complicated. But this is what we see in Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is a courageous individual who stood up for the cause of Christ. Let's note the context of our passage as we move forward. The context. What's interesting about this text are the various moving parts through personalities that are found inside of this event. Now, Joseph is one of those personalities. Joseph is inside of this historical context. We are focusing on Joseph, but there's multiple moving parts, and they're very personal individuals or things, such as the council. In Luke 22, verses 66, and then chapter 23, verse 2, that council or Sanhedrin is present in this moment, and Joseph is inside that context. Pilate, in 23, verses 3 and 4, Pilate asks the question, Are you Jesus, King of the Jews? Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent of the charges brought against him by the Sanhedrin. We see Herod treating him with contempt and mocking him we hear the mob crucify him crucify him give us barabbas so you have all these various personalities all these figures inside of the context and they're contrasting figures in verse 26 simon of cyrene is told to pick up that cross that jesus bore and carry it for him and then we have the two criminals in verses 39 through 43 where one is raising accusations against jesus and the other says lord Remember me when thou come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. That is the certainty with which we live. And then finally the centurion in verse 47. When the centurion saw all that was happening visually, the signs and wonders, he began praising God, saying certainly this man was innocent. He confessed. But in the midst of all that activity, all this movement, we now have, Joseph of Arimathea No one actually knows where Arimathea is the city of Arimathea or the region of Arimathea But we do know that this individual Joseph came from that area and he's identified by that There are three things that I'm wanting us to know initially concerning this passage and it'll help move us through this text first his character What was his moral fiber his caution? It says that he hid himself he did not openly identify with Jesus, as did Nicodemus, for fear of the Jews. And we have a tendency to be very harsh on an individual like that, but I wonder about those believers in Qatar, if they're waving the Christian flag publicly. What would be our response to them? Then we have his confession, verse 51. And then we'll see three other moving parts as we work through the text, but we'll note those in just a moment. But let's begin with his character. Certain things are said concerning Joseph, in verse 50, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, or Sanhedrin. He was a good and righteous man. He was a good and righteous man. This idea of good is only used by Luke in the New Testament. This was an individual who was decent like Joseph, the husband of Mary. And he was a righteous man. He was an individual that did the right thing. As noted, his character was such that he was seen as a good and righteous man. And then it says that he was part of the Sanhedrin. What is this council? Well, we know that it was the Jewish court system. And in many ways, it is just like our Supreme Court. These are very positioned people. They're very powerful people. And they're very prosperous people. And we'll see that by the gift that Joseph gives. The Jewish court system, the Sanhedrin, was made up of 70 individuals. It was their supreme court. It was their final court of appeal. It was composed of of high priests, of elders, and of scribes. And what's interesting is that the Roman, when Christ was crucified, the Romans would have left the body of Jesus on the cross for a display, a visual. And it said, if you mess with us, we're going to kill you. We're going to stomp you. But when Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate and asked for the body, Pilate gave it to him. Why did Pilate give it to him? Well, we don't know. I think one of the reasons why he gave it is because he wanted to poke his finger in the eyes of the Jews. But a second reason was because Joseph was of such a character that Pilate was willing to concede and give him the body. So we see that his character was absolutely outstanding. He was a good and righteous man. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was positioned, he was powerful, and he was prosperous. He had what many people would envy. But notice his caution. It says that he hid himself. In John 19, 38, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Our tendency is to find fault with men like Joseph or Nicodemus. But it is impossible to actually put ourselves in their historical context And fully appreciate what God was doing in them and through them to those around them. And as I I thought of this, I thought of those in Qatar. And I, I think to myself, well, what are the believers in Qatar doing? Because it is a capital offense to identify with Jesus in that context. But I do not doubt the character or the courage of those who live in countries like Qatar. And so when I consider this thought of his caution, he's hiding his discipleship or his love for this Messiah, for fear of the Jews. Many of us have hidden our love for Christ and his church for various reasons. And there are various reasons as to why some people do not come out publicly and identify with Christ. Our coworkers, or family members or even our closest social group might not know that we are lovers of Jesus. I pray and I'm confident that when it is necessary, we will openly identify with Jesus and his church. I know that when I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior at the age of 17 in a public high school context as a senior, uh, I didn't know that I, I was supposed to be quiet. And I was very, very verbal, very vocal, very visual. And it's part of my personality. And I think the response to me was quite interesting. But that's just who I am. And I would suggest to you that it isn't where we begin, but how we end up. It's not where we begin, but how we end up. And I'm quite confident that the day will come when those who are Christ's will be known. And we will wear that well. And I trust we will, whatever the cost, finish well. So it isn't where we begin, but where we end up. So we see this in Joseph. He's secretly a disciple for fear of the Jews. It isn't where he began, but where he ended up. The third thing we see is his confession. In verse 51, it says, "...who had not consented to their decision and action." He starts becoming vocal in his opposition to the actions taken by the Sanhedrin against Jesus. He's beginning to identify himself as a follower of Jesus. And again, we have to remember that there were many people proclaiming themselves to be Messiah... But here's now Jesus, and through signs and wonders, he shows himself to be the fulfillment of this seed promise, the completion of the blood picture. Jesus. Jesus is now openly identifying himself as Messiah. He's done that, and now Joseph of Arimathea aligns with this, and he's not consenting to their decision and action. And then it has this statement at the end of verse 51, and he was looking for the kingdom of, of God. The same thing is said concerning Simeon and Anna in the temple when Jesus was brought eight days after his birth. They were looking for the Messiah, for the kingdom of God. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. It is really that simple. That's what we are to be doing in our world. We are to be proclaiming to everyone everywhere the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus saves. Nothing else, no one else can save. Only Jesus saves. Our decision is what identifies us to our surrounding public and closest peers. Joseph's opposition to the decision and action of the Sanhedrin put him at odds with his surrounding public and closest peers. And again, place yourself in that context. And it is my prayer that we will openly stand for Jesus and his church as the pressures continue to increase, to capitulate and concede. Each of us will hear what I just said differently. What does that look like for each of us? But the time is soon approaching when we will openly identify, and it will take courage because it will have cost, but we will openly identify with our public and peer that we love Jesus. The differences between us and Babylon have always existed, and I've tried to stress that. Our times in which we live are not unique. The Lord is allowing us to see the sharp divide that does exist between the two. There is a garden, and you and I are inside the garden, and there is a Babel, a Assyria, a Egypt, a Persia. There is a kingdom of darkness in which we exist, but we are not of it. And that has always existed. May our confession become even more vocal and public as we stand for Christ and his church. Let the public and let our peers hear and see what we are for before they hear and see what we are against. If you ask me my opinion on everything that's happening around me, I've got one. I've got one. But before anyone hears that, I want them to know that I love Jesus. I want them to know that I love this church. I want my neighbors to know and see that my, myself and my family openly identify with Christ long before they know that I, I'm like topping out with all that's happening around me. Do people know us as lovers of Jesus and his church? All of the other things you are good at does not matter unless and until you are openly known as a lover of Jesus and his church. Many of you have incredible skill sets, fascinating hobbies. But the one thing that should dominate our thinking is Jesus. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? And I think of that with children, grandchildren, friends, and family. The gospel is the good news that Jesus does indeed save. The fourth thing we see then in verse 52 is his courage, the second part of this structure, his courage. It says that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now think about what has been said of this man. It says that he was a disciple of Jesus secretly for fear of the Jews. And now here he is, opposed to the decision that the Sanhedrin, his peers, have made. This is the Supreme Court. He is openly identified now with Jesus. And he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body. Three times in chapter 23, the word for ask occurs verse 23, verse 25, and then verse 52. And the way that it's translated in some translations is that he begged Pilate for the body of Jesus. He comes out and he asks. Joseph was willing to identify with Jesus and in so doing sacrifice his reputation and his very life for Jesus. Remember the closest circle of disciples that Jesus had? What were they doing at this time? They were running away. And yet, what was Joseph doing? Joseph was standing tall. He was standing firm. He was standing true. He was standing straight. So, it's not where you begin, it's how you end. His courage. We see this in Joseph. The fifth thing is found in verse 53 his commitment. It says in verse 53, Then he took it down. He took the body of Jesus down. And and let us not think that Joseph of Arimathea alone was standing at that cross, taking our Lord's body down. I'm sure there was Nicodemus. There are a group of women present, and we'll comment on those in a moment. There were the servants of these very wealthy, powerful, positioned people present. And they are likewise helping Joseph take care of the body. But it says he took it down. He wrapped it in this linen shroud... And he laid him in a tomb cut in stone. The other passages tell us that this was his own personal family tomb hewn out of solid rock where no one had ever yet been laid. I find the narrative of Scripture interesting and the reason why we know what is true is because the Bible tells us so. This isn't an overly complicated idea. How do I know that there's an ark? How do I know that there was a flood? How do I know there's a star? Well, Because the Bible tells me so, Amen. You know, it doesn't get really much more complicated than that. We can all enjoy the hunt, the search, the inquiry, but at the end of the day, I know what is true simply because the Bible says so. And I'm a person who believes that to be true. There have always been those theologians who deny the actuality of the text. One theologian stated that the body of Jesus was thrown into a shallow grave and eaten by dogs. How blasphemous. Another argued that Jesus was buried in disgrace as an executed criminal who died a shameful death. But that death was a substitutionary, sacrificial death that atoned for your sins and mine. The Son of God willingly laid down his life so that you and I might have life. Joseph openly identified himself with the Christ. Both of them were people of means. We see this. We see their commitment in the two things that took place. First, Joseph of Arimathea gave up his family tomb to Jesus. It has been suggested that when Joseph did the act, his family could no longer occupy the tomb. That tomb had been given completely to Jesus and, as it were, his offspring, though he was not married, he had no children. At great cost to Joseph, he gave him the family tomb. Now, others have suggested that when Jesus rose from the dead and there was no longer any evidence of a body in the tomb that the tomb reverted back to joseph for the use of his family but the cost of that tomb to joseph was priceless remember that joseph of arimathea was a person of means he had assets he had resources and he gave it to jesus the second thing we see are the spices that nicodemus brought to the table In chapter 19 of John's Gospel, it says that he brought upwards of 75 to 100 pounds of spices to wrap the body of Jesus in. Currently in Israel, they use about 5 pounds of spices on a dead body. Josephus, the ancient historian, tells of a famous rabbi, Gamaliel's burial, involving 40 pounds of spices. And here we have 75 to 100 pounds of spices. It suggested that the cost of those spices to Nicodemus was between 150 to $200,000. So when we see their commitment, they're all in. He offers them the family tomb. Nicodemus openly identifies with Jesus and brings this excessive, exorbitant amount of spices and wraps the body of Jesus in. They were people of means, and through their gifting, they identified with Jesus as Messiah. I've always thought when those who give regularly to the church, if that was ever known, not for the purpose of shame or guilt, but that was ever known, people would think you're nuts, that you would voluntarily, with no gain in the vertical, (laughs) give of your assets, your resources to the church, to Christ. That's amazing. That's amazing. But we see the level of commitment that... Joseph had that Nicodemus had in openly identifying and bringing these gifts to Jesus at his death We have the magi with the gold with frankincense and the myrrh. Now we have at the end of it Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus A tomb hewn out of solid stone And an abundant of spices Commitment says yes to one voice Yes to one voice and no to a thousand other voices Joseph left the pier and jumped completely into the water. And the final thing we see concerning Joseph is the company that he keeps at this moment. It says in verses 54 and following, It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. There are two groups, as it were, of people identifying with Joseph at this moment. The women and then Nicodemus. And I always find it fascinating the way Scripture plays things out. The female disciples of Jesus were women of strength and equal to and or surpassing their male counterparts in so many different ways. What is of interest to me is how the female disciples of Jesus are never seen as acting cowardly or selfishly toward one another. Now, you do have Martha and Mary, that one story in Luke, which I think is interesting, but it's somewhat exceptional, where Jesus says that Mary has chosen the one good thing. But what's interesting, when you read the biblical text, especially right here, you have these women accompanying Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and then at the, at the resurrection, it's the women who are present. They are always noted as committed and courageous at his death, at his burial and resurrection. It's the female disciples of Jesus joining their courageous counterparts, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and tenderly caring for his bloodied and broken body. These are the women, courageous and disregarding the cost. The second is that of Nicodemus. Nicodemus brings this incredible gift. He's the one that we know from John 3 who came to Jesus by night, probably thinking the same thoughts That Joseph of Arimathea thought. I suppose these two perhaps got together for the study of Torah and found Jesus in it. Nicodemus becomes famous for his night visit to Jesus in John 3. He brings this costly gift of exceptional expense. And like Joseph, Nicodemus hid his love for Jesus. But when it was necessary, he stood straight. He stood proud with Joseph and identified openly And confessed his love for Jesus. In the moment of testing, they openly identify with him. What do we do with such a story? Like Joseph of Arimathea, the day might very well be upon us where we will have to step forward and clearly identify our allegiance to King Jesus in the workplace, in the classroom, in the political office, and the home. And this confession will demand of us courage and come at great cost. This is what will happen in our context. It's happened, and it will happen. For all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's not something that we invite, but when there, we accept it as such. What do we do with this tax? And I think it is appropriate on the heels of Advent that we don't forget the story in which we live. We are celebrating God becoming flesh taking on himself, human nature. We celebrate a story of Emmanuel, God with us. And then we see how Joseph, in the midst of story, stands up and identifies openly with Jesus, and that courageous act cost him greatly. I don't believe the life of Joseph or Nicodemus or any of those who followed closely got easier. Well, three things, let me suggest them to you. First, we don't follow the crowd. We know we're just as bad, but we don't follow the crowd. We are in the world, but we are never of the world. There is a clear line of demarcation between Babylon and the garden. This distinction has always existed since the fall, and we must clearly understand and identify with the kingdom of light and not the kingdom of darkness. We see that with Joseph and with Nicodemus. The second thing we do see from this text is that following Jesus regardless of the cost, is absolutely necessary. I've never thought it one of discipleship, as some might define it, is given to us in the Gospels. But Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what we did and do as followers of Jesus. We are a courageous people openly identifying with Jesus. And that identification costs And the final thing is this, trust in his timing. God is working and his will is coming to pass. I have no reason or accusation as to those who are secret or are hiding concerning their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But God is working and his will is coming to pass. Joseph had no idea the days or weeks before the crucifixion that he would be able to be the one to honor the body of Jesus by bearing him according to custom. He had no idea. But when it all began to play out, he disagreed completely with the decision of the council of the Sanhedrin. He openly, with Nicodemus, identified themselves as believers in Jesus as Messiah. And that open identification cost them something. Joseph gives up this tomb. Nicodemus brings a costly offering at the burial it cost them something but god placed them right there at the right time to act for the cause of christ and god has you in your place god has you in your place the classroom political office the home the workplace god has you there it might come today or even next week but the point is to be ready for joseph of arimathea the opportunity arrived and he stepped out And like Esther, perhaps God has brought you into the kingdom for such a time as this, where you courageously and openly identify with Jesus. And that identification, that confession, costs you something. In the midst of our dark and foggy times, all sorts of voices are shouting orders into the night, telling us what to do, how to adjust our lives, how to live our lives. Yet out of the darkness, one voice signals something quite opposite to the rest, something almost absurd. But the voice happens to be the light of the world. And we hear and obey for our joy. Like Joseph of Arimathea, we courageously identify with the Son of God, regardless of the cost. I trust that God will embolden us as we live out our life In the horizontal, please stand with me as we close in prayer Our father we read the entire story from incarnation to crucifixion And ultimately resurrection ascension and glorification And that story in the horizontal is marked by hardship. It's marked by suffering. It's marked by persecution And it's because we live in a world that is hostile to the gospel. May we not forget that We have it good. We have it easy but Father, let us not be blind to that truth, that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Joseph reminds us that we still exist in story. Joseph reminds us that we openly identify with Jesus and that courageous act, that courageous confession does cost us something, embolden us, strengthen us for those moments. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for the sufficiency of Jesus that this entire thing rests on who he is and what he has done and who we now are because of that. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for the gathering of your people and for this reminder. We thank you in his name. Amen.